When Wellsprings has just one service during the summertime, my life fell into a nice little routine in terms of when I'd get up and when I'd drive here and what I'd listen to on the way here. And pretty much when I was just about 10 to 15 minutes away during the summertime hours, I would listen to the Puzzle Master Presents, you know, Will Shorts on NPR, and that would be part of my normal ritual, sort of mental aerobics, mental gymnastics to get my brain moving in the morning. And now, unfortunately, Cy, with the two services, I cannot listen to the Puzzle Master Presents on NPR anymore when I drive here. So I thought I'd start today with a little bit of, uh, a little bit something like that, a little bit of fill in the blanks. So I'm going to give you a part of a sentence fragment. I'm going to ask you to fill in the blanks here. Why don't you show the first one? The New York blank had more hits than the, what do we got? What, do we, what ideas here? Yankees. You know, you would think that knowing me, wouldn't you? But let me show you just a little bit more of the sentence. Show that second one. The New York blank had more hits than the New York Post did on their website. Now what would you guess? Times, you got it. Yeah, you people catching quick. Very nice. There is a prize at the end of this. Remember, if you fill in the, the card, just like when you play on the radio. Show the next one. The three-alarm blank was intentionally made hotter with the help of dot, dot, dot. What's that blank? All right, I hear about equal fire, equal chili here. Okay, let's see what it is. The three-alarm blank was intentionally made hotter with the help of the habanero peppers. I don't know any arsonist who uses those, so it probably is what? Survey says chili. We got one more. Jaws was the best blank of the 1970s. Movie? Oh, I heard something over here that might be leading us in the right way. Let's show the next one. Jaws was the best blank of the 1970s in Philadelphia. Show it. Quarterback. You got it. You got it. Ron Jaworski. Actually, it doesn't quite work that well because he was really only here 77 to 86. The 80s were a little bit better teams, but they started to be good in the late 70s. And Jaws, of course, the movie was 1975, as you all know. So that's the only way this question would work. The reason we started us out with this little game today is that something serious, something important in my life happened this past week that I wanted to share with you. And it's all about actually learning not to fill in the blanks in a premature way. This past week was the fifth anniversary of my sobriety, my recovery from alcoholism. And it is just one day, as they say, one day that if I look back on and celebrate it too much, I might lose the fact that it's today that counts. The meaning of celebrating any kind of anniversary, especially meaningful ones, is that it gives us the opportunity to recognize the distance between who we might have been back then and who we are now. There are so many different ways in which my life is better, deeper, richer, more happy than my life was when I was still actively consuming alcohol. I feel better physically. I certainly feel better spiritually. My mentor in ministry, some of you know, was Reverend Dr. Forrest Church in New York City, who died just last year. He, like me, actually before me, got sober when he was during his long pastorate at Unitarian Church of All Souls in the Upper East Side of Manhattan. He said that when he got sober, it wasn't so much that he believed anything substantively different from what he believed all those years he had been preaching before he got sober, what he felt, felt is that for the first time in his life, he actually really felt it in his heart. All that stuff about kindness and connection to higher power and that deeper meaning in life, he actually now really felt those things for the first time. That's the difference for me as well. 
But if I had to lump that all together into one thing in which and how my life is different now than it was five years ago, it would be this. I am learning truly how to listen. How not to fill in the gaps, whether driven by anxiety or anger or that desire to control, not to fill in those gaps before I have the fullest information, kind of like I set you all up to do today in the little game. Learning not to fill in all the gaps all the time for me is the spiritual discipline of leaving place and room for the soul to emerge, trusting that the soul will emerge and I cannot force it. I can't force it to happen. Parker Palmer, a Quaker teacher, actually resides in this area sometimes. He says that too often we can consume or think of the soul as something now. Give it to me now. I want it now. Dog, come here now. Soul, you now here. He said instead, it's actually the opposite. It's like going into the forest, into the woods trying to track a very wily, very smart, very amazing wild animal. How we can get really a glimpse of that wild animal is with learning to listen to our own footsteps, to the signs and its sounds, not scare it away. In talking about soul, I am speaking of that ineffable, almost indescribable part of ourselves that is the deepest part of ourselves that unites each with each and the part with the whole. I think of a story, probably apocryphal, from Sir Walter Raleigh. You might know his name is associated with tobacco. He was asked once by someone, who's probably trying to play a joke on him, tell me what the weight of smoke is. And so he picked up one of his favorite smokes, one of his cigars, and he weighed it very carefully, very exactly on the scale. And then he took it, lit it up, and smoked the whole thing down to the very, very end, being exact to make sure that he tapped out every ash back onto the scale. He said when he was done, he subtracted the weight of the ash from the weights of the cigar before it was smoked. That, he said, is the weight of smoke. Obviously not. But I think that's on target with how we talk about soul. That it is that essential part of ourselves that if we take the air out of us, we lose who we truly are. Kind of like what was left over at the end of that cigar after it was smoked. Ashes, as we say at so many funeral services and memorials, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. The soul is that part of life that animates us and allows us to go deeper. Something also that I know many of you say. Many of you say when you send me an email. Many of you say it when you greet me or when you greet each other. It's a word, a word that I think many of you know, even if you don't use it all that often. It's namaste. You know that word, namaste? It's often said with a bow, hands clasped over the heart. And literally it means I see you or I perceive you. But the deeper spiritual meaning is saying when we do, it's not just the recognition, the saying of it, but the doing of the namaste is that the divine spark in me, the essence of soul in me recognizes the essence of soul in you and that like recognizes like. And at the deepest level, we are one. The UU poet Mary Oliver, she talked about receiving in a poem simply called Mindfulness, receiving what she called the daily presentations. 
The daily presentations are not the huge high things, not the amazing things, not the kinds of things as a sports fan that I love to run towards, but the basic stuff, air and water and each other and the everyday stuff. When we can say namaste in the direction of the daily presentations, we really learn what it's like to listen to things as they are, not to fill in their gaps, but instead to receive them. This actually can be incredibly powerful, especially when we are stressed out or when we're angry or when we're wrestling with people who we think oppose us. I have a colleague of mine, the Reverend Elizabeth Ellis, who for many years has lived and worked and done ministry in Chester, in the city of Chester. Some of you are probably somewhat familiar with it. Some of you are not. Chester, let's just say this, is very different from Chester Springs. She has done ministry in an area in which she has worked with young gang members and people who have both been the victims of and have perpetrated violence, people who live difficult lives. She said so often the challenge is to listen to them beyond their fear, listen to them beyond their anger or their rage or their hostility. It is to learn to listen to them in such a way that she is guided by another way of saying namaste, the Quaker practice of looking at a person in another way so that we can truly see and know as authentic what the Quakers say, that which is of God in you. That is a practice that keeps her in her ministry because if she reacted only to the anger or reacted only to the stress or reacted only to the fact that people were acting out, she would not be able to sustain her work. Being able to say namaste in the direction and with the recognition of especially people who we think oppose us or make us angry or fearful is such an important spiritual practice. And it brings me around to something I mentioned last week, the rally to restore sanity. I think absolutely it is the case that in this kind of age that a funny person is leading us into incredibly serious work. And I will be there, as I know some of you are planning to be in D.C. on October 30th, on the day before Halloween. I think this rally to restore sanity is a response to the fact that our politics It has always been this way, but it seems now perhaps even more than ever as if it is nothing more than keeping score and deciding who's winning and who's losing based upon the day and who can win a little bit more and who can defeat the opponent and how can the losers get back into power and back and forth and back and forth. One of the reasons that I am such a big sports fan is a little secret here I'm going to tell you about me is that I know sports really don't matter very much. (laughs) Now, you know, yesterday when the Yankees were losing the second of two in a row to the hated Red Sox, you know, I was a little less... um, You can talk to Teresa about this. A little less calm in my demeanor. The great thing, though, about being a sports fan, if you don't take it too seriously, as seriously as I sometimes take it, it's kind of a paradox, it's easy to let go. However, when our very lives, our politics, the realm of spirituality and religion is all about winners and losers, and the losers trying to become winners again, and the winners trying to hold on to what they have for dear life, it echoes, in fact, what is one of the worst things said by one of Charles Dickens' most odious characters. He said in life, there are two things. There are beaters and there are cringers. The victors and those who are victimized. I think that what the rally to restore sanity in its most serious form is all about is learning to look and to listen beyond that dichotomy of the winners and losers and recognizing it takes time to learn to speak to each other seriously again. 
This is why I love, and I said last week, I'm going to get this printed on a t-shirt. And you may actually see me wear it at some point in this pulpit. The first thing John Stewart said when he was announcing the rally to restore sanity, I disagree with you, but I'm pretty sure you're not Hitler. See, make another person Hitler. Yeah, there's nothing we can do with Hitler. <laughs> but when we put our opponents, all our enemies, in that space of being the worst of the worst of the worst, there is no dialogue left. There is no space for listening. There is only space for fear. And it makes losers, ultimately. This way of non-communication makes losers of all of us. A book I read a number of years ago, simply titled Nonviolent Communication, it referenced a number of studies that I, since that time I've always wanted to go and look up, but I've never found them. But it made a claim that strikes me as correct, that in labor management negotiations, where every negotiator at the table makes one vow, that they will listen intently to the person, the negotiator who speaks before them, and they will repeat to the best of their ability what that person has said, and everyone makes that vow. So before you speak around that table, you have to repeat what the other person has said. The studies referenced said that, in fact, the time in those circumstances in which it takes to reach resolution is cut in half. Like I said, it strikes me as intuitively correct. And I know the opposite is true. When we can guarantee that the other, that we are not listening to them, we know that there will be waste and inefficiency and people talking past each other and really a whole bunch of people seated around a table. And this could be the boardroom table. This could be your kitchen table. Wherever there is a place in which people are not talking, not really listening to and with each other, it's going to be monumentally wasteful. Because they're not all really saying namaste to each other. Communication where we don't listen is non-namaste. It is saying we are not going to pay attention. And in one of the truest spiritual lessons that there is, we recognize that as we start to oppose our so-called enemy with more and more and more vehemence, with more and more and more anger, eventually one thing is guaranteed, whatever the outcome will be, we will start to sound exactly like they sound. I heard this recently. Some of you know the name David Sedaris, the humorist. He wrote uh, Me Talk Pretty one day. He wrote, and this is my favorite thing I ever heard from him, The Santaland Diaries, which I think was the first thing that made him famous on radio when he talked about his experience in a department store at Christmas time working as an elf. Take a listen to Santaland Diaries when you get a chance. It's amazingly funny, very heartful, and it also makes... Uh, being an elf in a Christmas time pageant in a department store sound exactly as awful as we would think it probably is. David Sedaris writes in a New Yorker magazine piece from this past August. It's simply called Standing By. And it is about the, well, the hellishness of having to fly a lot during the summer and spending hours and hours and hours of your time standing next to a lot of people who are cranky and tired and wanting to get to where they want to go but cannot find their way there. When he reflects in this piece, which is true and also humorous, he notices at one point there's a guy in front of him and a guy in back of him. The guy's a little bit older than him. And at one point they start to reflect on a young man, sort of an elder teenager almost, who's 
on the line with them, ahead of them. He's got dreadlocks, he's got baggy pants, and he's holding a child who probably is his child. And these two older guys, they start to grumble about you know, youth these days. The world's going to hell. And they start to grumble more and more and more. And eventually then they move on to the auto bailouts and they move on to the bank bailouts. And it's just a litany of all the things wrong with this country. And then one says to the other, we've got to take our country back. That's the long and the short of it. If votes don't work, then maybe we got to use force. And David Sedaris, as someone who's of a progressive bent, he reflected on their political rage and even the implicit threat of violence. And it's interesting, the humorist, David Sedaris, he was not angry at their anger. He didn't think it was illegitimate. What he did is he was threatened. He was threatened because he thought their rage got him to question, was his rage really real all throughout the Bush-Cheney years? He said, you know what? I know how to hate. Your hate isn't that deep. I know how to hate. He took umbrage at the fact that they were telling him that somehow my anger really wasn't that deep. And in listening to himself, before he almost says to these folks, don't tell me I don't know how to hate, he checks himself in the article and says, do you really want that message to be your message? Listening to his own capacity to get so stirred up, even if it's a different object, he starts to expose his sense that he sounds exactly like those people who he thinks he opposes. This is the tough thing about sustained anger. I mean, we all get angry from time to time. I certainly do. But sustained anger, sustained resentment. When we hold on to it and hold on to it and hold on to it, we can put ourselves in a place in which we think, and I will cop to this, my anger is entirely justified. My anger is entirely rational. My anger has a definite cause, and it's one of you use out there. But your anger, that's irrational. Your anger, you should get over it. This is what I think David Sedaris started to recognize. It is one of the most interesting places of the parallels between what Buddha taught and what Jesus taught. Probably the place where they sound most similar, and there are a number of places where they teach similar teachings. But on this one thing, they are almost unanimous. It is that we must, if we want to learn to grow spiritually in this life, we must find a different way of relating to our opponents or our enemies other than with fear or rage or anger or hatred. It is easy sometimes to give love to those we love, but it is really where we stretch ourselves. We learn to have compassion and grow compassion for those who oppose us. I think that John Stewart is unconsciously or not really actually taking one of the best parts of his own Jewish tradition from the Hebrew prophet Isaiah, who said in a particularly difficult time in the life of ancient Israel, he said, come, let us reason together. And I even love that other translations of that say, come, let us argue together. But the point is, let's sit down at that table, that table of brotherhood, sisterhood, fellowship, and learn to relate to each other, especially at those moments when we don't want to. As the Dalai Lama said, what we do in those moments is we investigate. We try to understand what's causing all those hard feelings within ourselves, even if we don't change the other person. This takes time, and it is a namaste practice. 
is when we listen and learn to recognize the divine aspect is a part of all or truly it's a part of none. That's part of our universalist tradition. And we also see that when we listen in this way, we don't just recognize the soul within the other person. We grow it within ourselves. That's what I'm starting to learn how to do rather than filling in those gaps, (laughs) especially with people who make me anxious, angry, scared, or I think I oppose. The great thing about learning to develop this way of speaking to our enemies is that sometimes when our enemy is the person sitting on the other side of the kitchen table or the person or the people with whom we share our lives, it gives us the opportunity to still recognize their soul. There's a guy named Mark Golston who for years taught at UCLA, taught in the business school. He was, um, is a psychiatrist. He writes a lot about business coaching and healthy communication. Golston said that he wrote a book a number of years ago called Just Listen. You actually can see the video of this on YouTube if you're so interested. And he was asked, why did you write this book, Just Listen, that's all about healthy communication and learning to truly open our ears and our souls to another person? And he said it had nothing to do with what he learned in the business world and nothing to do with what he learned in the academy or in the university. He told this story. He said that in his household, he has three daughters. The eldest of which is Laura, six years old. Laura was always what you might say, not that any of you know about this with your own children, right? An an oppositional child. (laughs) Pushed back a lot, a lot of resistance, a lot of pushing back. And it only got worse when Laura had her second sibling. When the Golstons had their third child. The third child just come into the household and it got worse. Everything was oppositional. Everything was pushing back. Finally, one day, the author's wife said to him, I need to stay with the baby here and you need to take Laura out of here and far away from me because I cannot deal with her or with this anymore. And Laura and her dad stormed into the living room and it was bad before, it was horrible now. She started cursing and swearing and said, I will not share with that child. I will not. I won't. I can't. The volume raised and raised and raised. And the author, Mark Golston, said, you know, he would have been justified with giving her the longest recorded timeout in the history of all timeouts. That would have been entirely justified. Go to your room. Get out of here. No one wants to see you right now. But he kept asking the question, what is it? What is it, Laura? What is it? And at first it was just anger and anger. I won't share. I can't share and cursing and swearing and all that. But he kept asking, looking her in the eyes like a stare off of any of you have ever had this with your kids. You know, it's who's going to blink first. He would not let her go. What is it, Laura? Tell me, what is it? And something broke in Laura because she jumped up onto the table in between them and threw herself, literally just cascaded herself right into her dad's arms and threw her arms around his neck and clung on for dear life. And through her sobs, she said, I was the first one to be born. That means I'm going to be the first one to die. That was the level of her fear. That's where the anger was coming from. She thought, okay, you know, older people, and I'm becoming an older person, older dogs, grandparents, they all die. I'm going to go. At the deepest level, what she was really wondering about, is there going to be enough love for me in this family? But as we more articulated as adults, 
is there going to be enough life left for me in life? And he thought, if I didn't keep asking and wanting to listen and wanting to hear, what is it, Laura? I could have sent her to her room and given her a punishment because she was terrorized at the thought of her own death. But when we learn to listen, we can perceive something deeper than anger or fear or pushing back. If we learn to ask each other when we're in these moments, truly tell me what is it? And you know, maybe it is finally easier with a six-year-old because as adults, it can take us a long way and a long time to get down to that place of finally being honest about what's causing our own oppositional behavior. This kind of listening to soul, this kind of namaste, it is all about, all about, as the southern tradition sort of say, you ever hear that? Can I get a witness? <laughs> Can I get a witness? It's not about being a witness to a crime. It's about witnessing through our listening to the life is in our midst and the soul that is always there if we have the capacity to see it. Annie Dillard, one of my favorite spiritual writers, she said that we are here to abet creation and to witness creation. To notice each other's beautiful face and to notice, this is the key part, to notice each other's complex natures. <laughs> and we are pretty complex. So that creation need not play to an empty house. Can I get a witness? Can any of us get a witness? It really depends on one thing. How we will open ourselves with our ears to the call of listening. How we will open our being up, not so we can witness crime, but so we can witness creation. And witnessing it be the kind of catalyst that can move life forward and inward and deeper and more wonderful. Amen. May you live in blessing. Let's pray together. Source of namaste. May we hear the call with open ears and open hearts and open souls. Recognizing that you and the presence of holiness is with us every moment. May we be receptive through our listening to those daily presentations and receive them fully so that life can receive us. May we recall in those moments of stress, recall in those moments of anger, fear, opposition, that truly that which is divine, it never goes away within us, and it is a part of all. Amen.